that one defining characteristic of life is really that it can heal itself, is that it's regenerative. Um, and I think when we're aware of that and of our singular power as a keystone species on this planet, um, we end up making very different decisions. Um, and this is a not a sustainable system that we're living in and everybody knows it. Welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where every week we dive into different topics related to climate and conservation. I am James. I'm Annalie. And I'm Nari. And this week we're talking to Gaia Urshan, uh, someone who I met, I guess we met a little over a year ago, right, Gaia? Around a year, not even that long ago. Yeah, something like fall. that, last summer. Yeah. And it's been uh, an absolute joy getting to know her um, and her incredible body of work and just passion for the environment, which we'll delve into. But uh, Gaia, thanks for thanks for joining us and thanks for all the all the work you put in uh, to the world, which uh, everybody will soon find out about. Thanks for having me. So Gaia, uh, do you want to just start by sort of introducing yourself um, and you know, how, how you describe yourself and the work you do and um, what sort of drives you and um, dedicating your life so much to, to the environment? Um, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, but. Uh, um... <laughs> well, let's start with, let's start with um, what, what, what is your driving force um, in the work you do uh that you know, why have you dedicated your life to the environmental crisis, um, and when when did that start to happen for you? If like, if you can think of the sort of tipping point of that. Yeah, I think so. My um, my my parents were activists um, and very engaged, and had a very very strong feeling that our job was to um, make the world a better place. And they had some very different ideas about how to go about that than. I do now, but I definitely was raised in a culture that was around service to people and planet. Um, and my stepfather, actually, when I was seven, made one of the very first films on climate, um, covering a lot of what was happening in the Brazilian Amazon at the time. And so I think at the age of seven, I was introduced to a very intense existential reality, which I've had to... Um, live with for my entire life so I never really there wasn't like a moment that I was like turned onto it I just was I was raised in a that culture and I was exposed at a very very young age to a massive existential threat which is quite hard to ignore if you really take it on board so um yeah I don't know that's probably the starting point for it the first chapter of your working working life, let's say, uh, was was filmmaking, correct? Yes, yeah. So my my parents made films, um, and they were they were communists. Um, and um, my father died when I was a teenager, and I my rebellion was to really just become a capitalist and make films. So I'd learned filmmaking from my parents and my wider family community. And I, I, I went into advertising and, um, 
built a company from scratch with two other people um, for a few years in London, and we did a lot of commercials and music videos. and And then, as soon as I could escape that, I came to um, California at the age of twenty one. I want to say probably, um, yeah. <laughs> it was a uh, yeah. Where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up. Um, I was born in London and. Um, raised you know pretty much all over I am mostly between Sri Lanka and Scotland that's my kind of main places but traveling like pretty constantly my parents were pretty much on the road until I was about 10 um and because of their work they were filmmakers um as well so yeah so very kind of just uh a lot of a lot of countries and a lot of just different experiences and a lot of different languages of which I can't remember any at this point which is amazing <laughs> I only speak English at this point but yeah there was it was a lot of variety growing up <clears throat> and no school I had a question there um, yeah that's that's a really interesting life experience I had a question there when you were talking about kind of your first uh, encounter with this problem uh, the planet is facing. You mentioned you were introduced to like the existential crisis that is there as a child. So would you say you started caring because of fear or what were the emotions you were having back then? Can you recall that? What brought you into caring even more as you were growing up? Um, <clears throat> I think I, I think there's two motivating factors for me. One is that we were often very, very rural and very remote. Um, and so in Scotland, where I spent the majority of my childhood, we were 15 miles from the nearest town. And I didn't go to school and I had siblings, but like not a lot else in terms of social interaction. And so actually a lot of my interactions were with horses and trees and this incredible landscape that we lived on. So there was a very innate feeling of just the aliveness of nature and the amount of information that's there. Um, And so part of me never really got inculcated into the sort of status quo that we have right now in our culture. Um, So I think on the one hand, there's this tremendous like love and connection I've always felt to everything that is natural. Um, And then on the other hand, just trying to deal with, the potential loss at you know a scale that is beyond anything that's been seen for quite a few million years um and so i think there's um in a lot of ways like my you know my joy comes from service and my joy comes from feeling connected to something bigger than myself and and that's a far better um place to move and work from than really that the the, you know the fear the fear place but you know the first film that I made was on the mass extinction of species and um it was I looked at that crisis that's basically on the sixth mass extinction which we're now you know a couple of decades into um but I wanted to look at it through the lens of human culture and psychology um and it's very hard not to end up in a very very dark place um and so even though I wanted to take a holistic perspective on what the mass extinction of species really means, I ended up um, 
you know, really like in the classic environmentalist who cares way, just like bashing people over the head with these like horrific facts about where we're, where we are and where we're headed. And, um, and I think that that was kind of a turning point that was in my mid twenties. And that was kind of a, a turning point where I just really felt like leaning on the, the feeling of connection to nature and the feeling of, um, of service and the pleasure and the pleasure of being needed. I think humans really, really want to be needed. You know, that's a core human drive, um, became much more kind of the driving force for that motivation side. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, yes, it, it, it does. It's, um, it's just fascinating how, um, those experiences can shape, who you become and also what you do in the world. And I, and I wanted to know like what that journey was like for you. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it is existential. I mean, it's like, it's the end of, you know, life in many ways. And, um, it led me on a very, like I'm, I, my, my core passion is deep ecology. I, I look at the ecological crisis through, um, the lens of our of humans and their beliefs and how our beliefs really affect our ability to live long-term on the planet. Um, and I think that that, f- for me, it became this kind of very internal, external journey um, of discovery, which is I'm still very much on. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting though. Gaia, beyond, beyond filmmaking, you've done a lot of interesting <clears throat> advisory work uh, for both private and public sectors, um, rather than sort of listing through those, cause, uh, you have many, is there one that sort of stands out, one anecdote, one person, uh, that you worked with that you felt, uh, an experience that kind of shaped, you continue to shape your trajectory and, and shaped, uh, your sort of drive and, um, and goals. Is there, is there anything that kind of stands out from some of the different advisory work you've done? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, that my focus up until starting Dashboard Earth um, a couple of years ago, almost two years ago, um, my focus was really filmmaking and it's it's very arduous and long process, especially to make a feature. Um, and it doesn't, I've been lucky and, you know, managed to raise a lot of like millions of dollars for my movies, but that is there's long you know you have to do other work so actually my advisory stuff has really been felt very like secondary like I don't I just I get kind of pulled into things um as useful um and I think that you know when you spend five years of your life looking at like one topic you end up with this body of knowledge um and I mean I'm you know to make any one of those features I must have read like probably 300 books um and interviewed, you know, amazing people. A lot of people don't make it into the movies. Um, but you end up with this kind of body of knowledge and then you and then I'd end up being sort of pulled into you know, by my community into interesting things. Um and I don't it's not um yeah, it's not like a, a core focus, but it has given me some interesting insights into how foundations work and how corporations work um and I tend to work on the culture change side of things and I'm just trying to think I mean the last thing I did was a couple of years ago with um with Ikea who are planning uh you know what <laughs> I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it 
um, but they, they're making a shift into regenerative agriculture and a lot of what I focused on with Prince Charles and um, Vandana Shiva and a lot of people in this space has been agriculture. Um, and so they were working on how do we educate and change the culture inside of IKEA and through our supply chain um, towards regenerative agriculture. And I realised that I'm probably not allowed to say more than that. Sorry, I forgot. That's <laughs> no, okay. Um, yeah. Um, your, your sort of journey, uh, we, we talked about ahead of time over email really came through learning through experience and then, you know, classroom, let's say. And the truth is, I mean, for, I think most of us here, myself, Nari and Annalie, from an environmental and climate standpoint, it's also kind of learning through experience. Like, uh, we, none of us, uh, sort of went through, mm-hmm. um, you know, formal, uh, climate science programs and, and, you know, most people don't really go through them, right. Because we don't have climate as a curriculum in, uh, K through 12, mm-hmm. um, in any, any sense of fashion. Can you, can you talk about what it, you know, to arrive where you arrive, um, primarily through just experience and curiosity and talking to people and learning that way versus a classroom setting. What advantages do you think that has? What disadvantages are there? How is that, how has that process shaped you? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I am the you know, beneficiary of a very kind of organic process of learning. I mean, my, my parents very, really valued learning in every possible way and they really um taught us to be curious and stay curious and I'm one of five siblings and we're all working what we all do environmental work all in completely different sectors um and you know it's it sort of worked well for us I feel like when you are yeah it's a you know I think it's an honor I mean I, I also it's a lot of things that have to be figured out because it's um there's plenty of ways it can go wrong but for whatever for my family it did work um but I think that one of the kind of problems that I see in the climate space is that um there's a real disempowering of people so the way that environmental groups frame um the climate crisis tends to be around emissions and emissions reduction um and that's gone on for years i mean i think my you know i mean war with my friends at greenpeace i mean 12 13 years ago like why won't you include regenerative agriculture in your messaging you know you are the you're the people who are framing how we think about climate um and they will only talk about um emissions and essentially like tailpipe so there's all of these ways in which we're told that if you care about climate you basically have to um you know reduce and also if you look at the figures and you look at emissions then really there's it's hard not to feel like we're just completely it's a losing battle um so there's an important work that came out a few years ago called drawdown that paul hawkin did um and he really talks about how the thinking needs to be about how we draw in carbon out of the atmosphere. And for me, a lot of the work that I've looked at around the world is around adaptation. You know, we are facing a tremendous increase in um, every type of instability, weather-wise, hotter hots, colder colds, windier winds, 
And this is incredibly destabilizing for any city settlement, any human. And we have to adapt. And I think that the adaptation question has been completely abandoned. So for me, when you cut, when you're told, when you look at climate, you're told to look at it from an emissions perspective and it becomes incredibly disempowering. Actually, what we have to do is think about and engage people in how do we adapt our homes, our families, our neighbourhoods, our cities in the face of very extreme weather? Um, And how do we support and invest in drawing down carbon from the atmosphere? And a lot of the most, you know, profound companies out there are the companies that are you know for instance interface is a company that was a carpet company that took petroleum out of the ground turned it into carpets those carpets ended up in landfills they've completely changed their business model their business model is literally to be carbon negative so unless they're drawing carbon out of the atmosphere they don't think that they should exist and ikea is going the same way so there are these companies that really are changing the very shape of it and that for me is really like how do we get consumers to move in a direction that's going to push these companies and support these come push bad companies more in the direction of good companies um wow that was really rambling (laughs) but um hopefully you're following it i actually um i had a question there from from this kind of differentiation of good companies and bad companies do you think that um for a company to go through a t- transformation like that, it has to be culturally kind of innate to them or companies can change and make that decision. And even if they have not been thinking about this at all or they have been completely purely revenue oriented or cost cutting oriented, they can change the direction. And we will see that happening if there are enough resources to support them in that journey. I think it takes pressure from from all sides and I think it takes pressure from consumers primarily um and really that I mean I do think it's mostly consumers but the companies that have had the biggest effect and taken the biggest risks are the ones that have really visionary founders you know Patagonia is a classic example of somebody who just you know he really has like thought outside of outside of the mainstream but you know i think what you find is that these a lot of these companies are far more sustainable um and i think that the pressure increasingly is also going to come from government because they can't afford to um for instance deal with the amount of trash that these companies are making so you know the the new laws state that you've got to have 30 or 40 percent recycled plastic in your bottles starting next year in some places um and the and so that that's a type of a government pressure but again that's coming from public opinion so i think to me it all starts and ends with what the public are willing to put up with and support and and say no to um primarily and that's what gives these founders who really manage to kind of break the mold um obviously it gives them customers but it gives them um the courage as well do you think enough is happening so there's there's two sort of chasms of sort of public action unfortunately one of them is just yelling on twitter but then not making any actual behavioral changes or or consumption changes right um actually deciding what products they buy or don't buy 
is probably, I mean, these are like, if you're going to impact a bottom line company, um, bottom line driven company, uh, that has far more sort of impact than, um, than tweets. Uh, do you think enough is happening on that aspect of, of consumer behavior in terms of really the, the, the consumption behavior that these companies thrive off of, um, because it seems to be there's a lot of sentiment out there and pro-environmental sentiment on social media, but without the corresponding change in actual consumption habits and purchase decisions, uh, you know, worry, worry that it's just not it's not going to be good enough just to sort of rant on on, on social media. What are your what are your kind of uh, thoughts on that? I mean, I think the people I think companies would actually pay a fair amount of attention to <clears throat> social media, but the. I think the fascinating thing for me is is just like thank God for millennials. I mean, I'm people. A lot of people in my generation. I'm in my forties now. Are um, you know, don't love working with millennials, but <clears throat> I personally do. Um, and it's unbelievable how quickly their purchasing habits are changing and how much more they're willing to spend. Um, how important the the brand actually is to them and how well that they're how well they're doing um so i think that there's a huge cultural shift occurring um in the millennial is willing to pay more amazingly like every study now is saying that and really you know they are hip to eating meat and which meat is you know okay um and so there's a very there's a very it's a I think a very changing landscape um, in in that respect. And I think companies are aware that that's where the trend is going and they're being forced to respond to that. Um, and you see it in all the new types of marketing. I mean, it's, it's, you see them responding pretty roundly at this point. Now, I would say probably 80 percent of it is greenwashing um but i would like to think that you know we're heading to a point where we'll get a critical mass of um goods and services and food that is created in a way that's regenerative for the individuals creating it and the land and the resources that it's being created from and i think that that idea of regeneration i mean i think i'm always fascinated by the fact that the one defining characteristic of life is really that it can heal itself is that it's regenerative um and i think when we're aware of that and of our singular power as a keystone species on this planet um we end up making very different decisions um and this is a not a sustainable system that we're living in and everybody knows it i loved one of the um stats that came out of the uk recently around covid and post-covid i mean nine percent of people in this one survey said that they wanted to go back to the world the way it was and that's a very very small percentage of people who think that the system that they are living in and that they depend on is one that they want to support or that is supportive of them or their lives or their children so i feel like there are frames like the regenerative frame like drawdown like adaptation which are 
empowering, which everybody can get on board with, which will then change the um, change the choices that are made. You know, but again, for me, like I tend to see things from a much more like macro sort of philosophical perspective because deep ecology is really like the look of that. What is your identity and who you believe you are in the world? How does that affect your everyday decisions and how does that affect your long-term viability as a species? And, and so I do tend to sort of come back to that, but I think that that is a trend that's being played out, you know, massively on the consumer side and on the um kind of sustainable brand side right now do you do you think talking about covid a little bit in the situation we're in do you, do you think enough people are making the connection to this and the way we we treat the natural world and um you know how, how linked they are together uh, sometimes i worry that i mean i see it but i'm in a bubble of people like me you know i obviously gravitate towards people like you guy all right that um i choose to be friends with because we have similar ideologies and and um and sort of like dreams for this planet uh but you know that's not necessarily representative of the mass population and this is a question for nari and annalee as well like do, do we do we think we've all been in this now for um several months do we think enough people are making the connection um on these two things I think it's a mix. Some people were really woken up and shook by the pandemic and by realizing the interconnectedness of all things, all people, all lives. But sadly, I will say that I've noticed that with time, I think it depends on the generations, but a lot of folks are getting impatient and are starting to put aside the reality to just kind of appease like the way that they've lived before. I think um, I think short term I would ag- agree with Annalie, but I also I also like to think this process is going to be a lot more long term than even the effects of what's what's been going on, um, and um, with that there's going to be a lot of adapting to the situation that is necessary. Um, what's going to happen with cities, with work, with families, and a, a lot of a lot of this, this change is going to shape how we think about all of these things because they are very interconnected. So um, I definitely think we will see uh, a big difference in the next five, six years to the way we leave. And hopefully that will be um, that will be in the positive rather than in the negative. Um, I also like uh, what Gaia was saying about kind of the, the adaptive way of thinking about this, not, not just saying, oh, you should... Um, you should cut the emissions straight away or all this like very, very, um, all these phrases that are so common, people have become immune to them, but none of them are a recipe or a path to adapting to real dangers or real threats or real situations that are going to happen. So um, I think this path of adaptation is is going to be an interesting one and we are sort of forced to be in it. So um, I would be in the long term, um, I would be more positive about that. Um, yeah, and I also think even like the, if, if the millennials are making all these choices, I think the generation after the millennials, like Gen Z or however they're, they're called, like I think they are going to be even more um, involved in all of this. And, and for them, it's going to be native. Uh, most of them won't have to change their decisions about life because that will 
that will be how they leave and how they make decisions in general. So it's not, it won't be so much a process of long change. I think, um, yeah, I, I'm very positive about their generation as well. However, however yeah, they're called. Yeah, so true. <laughs> that whatever, I know, Z, uh, yeah, no, I'm so with you on that. Yeah, the generation, yeah, it just seems like it comes baked in and all these things that had to get learned by my generation were just, you know, yeah, I guess I want to put a, you know, my, my worrisome counter to that because mm-hmm. I want to think that and be optimistic for that reason is that typically, even in the past, we have seen younger people are more progressive and they, they sort of, as they age, they become less progressive. And their studies have shown that it's a lot of times mm-hmm. when you're younger, you're not financially driven yet. You're not responsible for a family yet. Uh, Mm. You know, you sort of have a period between ages of 16 and 30, 25, whatever it is, where you sort of (laughs) get your backpacking, you know, through life, so to speak. And, um, you know, you're very, it like the responsibility of life hasn't really fully be set on you. And then as you get into your thirties and forties and responsibility kicks in and paying the bills and all these things, you just sort of succumb a lot, a lot of you succumb to the, um, just the, the sort of the rigor of that and, um, and the sort of the, just the day-to-day grind of that. And so that's my worry still is that I do think there's more awareness for sure, but We've have seen in the past too younger parts of of generations being more progressive and becoming less progressive as they age. I think that, so that I, you know we would they would be incredibly lucky to have the kind of stability that we have experienced that I've experienced in my lifetime, um, in which they can ha- have something to inhabit and defend and get like you know conservative about. I mean, I think I'm probably a good test kind of version of like kids like the kids really running and driving the climate movement right now who are completely understand the level of danger that we're in but also living in a world where there are floods fires constant I mean you think about like the fires in Australia these are not this isn't the stability that you're talking about does not exist and it will not exist for that generation. So there will never be a moment when they can like sleep soundly in their beds and just only worry about their children. That's just not where we're at. From here on in, we are going to see further and further and further increasing disruption. I mean, there is no, this has been predicted for a very long time and we don't like in LA right now, the, some of the work that we're doing in LA is how do we mobilize citizens to cool the city by 10 degrees? And there is a whole raft of things that can happen to cool the city. But the question is how long can we keep LA livable for, right? Like right now, LA is not livable for very long. I mean, they're saying most people's mortgage will not be paid off by the time the city itself becomes an unlivable thing. So we're in a situation in which there's very real, there is no like trust funds. There's no, even school is kind of like gone out the window. And so I don't, I actually don't think that people are going to have a chance to settle down 
they're not they're going to have to really stay on their toes and like figure out survival and very survival to them is going to mean something totally different than it means to my generation and i think and i don't that i'm not i'm i i don't think i'm being like too <laughs> crazy when i say that because um every one of these things has been predicted is like come has come true so you know here we are in a world of flames floods landslides typhoons and we have no choice other than to adapt and we're not going to get to forget it for more than like 20 seconds and the brilliant thing about covid in some ways i mean there's no brilliant thing about covid there's people dying but there is also a real look at like what is your life support system what is essential what's essential in your life what's essential for you to keep breathing and who are the people that you really need in your life so these are really it's an amazing moment and that supply chain disruption from like electronics to um fashion to food like we're gonna be feeling like even if everything went back to normal in six months time we're going to be feeling the effects of the supply chain disruption for years to come. So it's not the, the world of abundance that like people in rich cities have experienced. And those are the people who are making the decisions right now is, is not that that's gone as far as I'm concerned. Um, we, we understand how fragile we are right now. And I don't think that we're going to forget that very easily. I think that's a great point. I think the, <clears throat> These existential threats are far more tangible and real um, and less hypothetical, right, for for this generation. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the the deciding factor that, you know, keeps them progressive. Um, and if you look at even SARS and MERS and H1N1 and you know, COVID, these these viral breakouts have are happening at an increasing rate. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh you know, it's very likely that there's another one around the corner uh, that we'll probably encounter within the next five years or, or, or it's going to be COVID continuing to um, evolve and just, you know, come, come back and come back. But that combined with, you know, the, the California fires we feel here, the, obviously the bushfires in Australia were terrible this year. Um, You know, you have the typhoon uh, this week. Um, Mm. I mean, flooding in Michigan this week. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. These things are tangible and real. Yeah. And Um, ongoing, and it might be too late. I mean, you know, to survive, there needs to be huge investments in infrastructure and in community. And those investments have not been made in in a lot of parts of the world. I mean, you know, it's fascinating to me. I spent a lot of time looking at, like, just civilizations and the rise and fall of them and also – really made sure that I've included indigenous voices in everything I've made short form, long form, whatever it is. I always, I feel like they give a really unique perspective. Um, and you know, you understand survival at a very, very different level. Um, when you look at people who have lived in one location contiguously for 8,000 years, they actually understand how to do that there so when you talk about adaptation like there's a really deep knowing and we have gone and spread a one monoculture around the world of mind and um 
it's highly mechanized, it's separate, and it, it believes that competition is the only real thing in life and it is has absolutely nothing to do with how nature in fact works and what the reciprocal nature between human beings and um their life support system actually is i mean you know we are a keystone species we belong on this planet the biodiversity on this planet is in a large part due to our existence here and there is a very very um profound feeling i think that comes from knowing that you belong knowing that you're here and that you're here for a reason and that there is an infinite number of things that you can do that are going to feel good um and i think that we've we've really that's where i would like to see us get back to and i can't really see a leap sort of beyond that in some ways there's so much that we can that we should be constantly learning from uh, indigenous people and the bushfires were a great example of that, of, you know, there's practices for maintaining land and, um, you know, burning mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. Uh, certain um, at certain rate each year to prevent these things that just uh, yeah. completely were forgotten. Um, yeah. And because the indigenous people in Australia have been forgotten, they've been pushed aside and it's, What's so sad, the sad irony of that all this is it's usually those people that get harmed the most from these disasters and outbreaks. Um, and, and, and it's those people that are sitting on the real, the, the, a lot of the key ingredients um, of what we need to prevent them. If we just actually incorporate them in our public policy and incorporate them, you know, in our, um, in our government, um, mm-hmm. and we give them, you know, we improve them from a socioeconomic standpoint. And it's, it's such a sad irony to me that the very people that are sitting on so much valuable knowledge and information ability to help us live harmoniously with the natural world are the very people that get hurt the most by our, our continued exploitation of the natural world. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely say that our survival is dependent on them. I mean, we've taken our major food crops, you know, really we're dependent on three or four species for every single one of our major food crops. And the biodiversity that exists, those species are not viable over the long run. They just aren't. You know, bananas are not going to be around in 10 years. Um, the biodiversity, it of all of these species is being protected right now and stewarded by indigenous communities. Um, anyway, that's another whole nother wonderful topic. And I maybe forgot to tell you that I have to wrap this by 11. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Wait, we're losing, we're going to lose bananas in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking. Wait, wait a second. You can't just like, throw that out there like nonchalantly. <laughs> is that true Gaia yeah are you just scaring us no no that's true ask Google (laughs) Google. literally when when you said that the first thing in my mind which is so like silly and egotic I had some fresh bananas still green I was thinking (laughs) I better enjoy them as long as I can and just eat a few (laughs) Yeah, I'm binging on bananas for the next 10 years of my life. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I guess that's a topic for another time. Uh, you, you dropped a sorry. You dropped a, a nugget there. We're gonna have a follow up banana talk. Just on banana to Papua Guinea, which is the birthplace of the banana. All right. Well, you, you really dropped the dropped the bombshell on us as you as you as you wrap up the the, the podcast. So kudos to you for leaving a cliffhanger. <laughs> Into another one. Um, Thank you, guys. Uh, anybody who listens to this, they're just if they get to the end, they're just going to be tweeting out about bananas being lost. <laughs> That's the only takeaway they're going to get from this. <laughs> the dog is that we're losing bananas. Oh my god, I um, love it, guys! Right, thank well, you so much. For having thank you so much. Yeah, do this kind of thing, and I appreciate the invitation. And James, you're amazing. I just love your work and i need to send you pictures my kids filled in the entire coloring book both of them and i'm going to send you photographs yeah thank you for the time thank you for all the work you've done the films you made um you know you've been a for me personally a great uh just i'm just ha- so happier in my life and someone i can talk about these issues with um because you've seen it um from so many different angles and you've studied it for so so many years so yeah, thanks for thanks for being you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's oh, awesome. Okay, have a great day, guys. All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Bye.